Welcome to this Palm Sunday. Glad that you are here. Uh, we are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. Our theme for this year is Under the Sun, and you can get a lot more information about that on the card that has been left on your seat. If you are new to Grace, we would encourage you after the service to uh, go back to our Welcome Center and get a little bit more information about what is happening at Grace. In case you aren't aware, this is Easter week. A week from today is Easter. Pastor Mike is going to be addressing the subject today and throughout the week in different ways. And in particular, on Sunday, I'm sorry, on Wednesday evening, we will be having our normal youth groups, uh, high school, junior high, and a normal Awana. But for everyone else in the worship center, um, there will be an Easter worship service, and uh, Pastor Mike will be leading that. So we would encourage you to be a part of that if you're not already involved in one of the other ministries on Wednesday night. So that's Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 o'clock in the worship center. And then on Thursday and Friday, we have um, a lunchtime service that is going to be live streamed. By the way, on Wednesday... Uh, Wednesday evening, that service is in person in the worship center, or you can watch on the live stream. On Thursday and Friday at lunchtime, um, there will be a live stream uh, service that you can watch um, as well, so we would encourage you to be a part of that. And then next Sunday is Easter, and uh, there will be 
um, baptisms on Easter Sunday morning. And so uh, if you have not been baptized and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, we would encourage you to be baptized next Easter Sunday. There is a baptism class today at 11 o'clock, um, so at the same time as uh, third service. So um, be a part of that if you're interested in being baptized next week. Also, uh, check out the blue card that is um, on your seat for just more information about other upcoming events. Um, you can use the QR code to sign up. And uh, last thing we want to draw your attention to is uh, today is the day that um, as a church we approve our, um, our budget for the upcoming fiscal year that starts on April 1st. All members 18 and over have already been sent a form to fill out to um, affirm the budget for the upcoming year. So we would ask if you have not done that yet that you do that by 5 o'clock today. So uh, if you would, please stand, and uh, we are going to begin our time of singing. And uh, before we do, uh, I wanted to read Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 62, 1 and 2. And it says, for God, alone is, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And Lord, we come to you this morning recognizing that you reign over all things and you are worthy of our praise. So fill our hearts today and our mouths with praises that are worthy of you and that we would cling to you, the rock of our salvation. And we commit this time to you and in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, 
If you would, remain standing and uh, grab your Bibles, and we are going to be hearing from Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32 through 43. Luke 23, starting in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to... uh, be praying for our service now, and as we do, we're going to uh, remember uh, Patty Morris, who has been serving as a missionary for a very long time in uh, the country of France. And so, um, let's pray now. Lord, we come to you today, and we recognize that you are the creator of all things. You hold all things in your hands. God, you're the author of life, and you are sovereign over all. God, you are in the highest of heights and the deepest depths, there isn't any place that you don't rule and reign. And yet, God, so often we confess that we live as if you are not present, as if you are not there. We live as if we are the holders of our destinies and the rulers of our fate, and that we are the ones who decide what is right and wrong. And so, God, we ask that you would forgive us and turn our hearts and our minds and our attention to you this morning, that we would see you as king, that we would bow before you as king. God, that we would know that apart from Christ, we are condemned, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so help us to know that you are holy and just and righteous, and yet you're a God who is merciful and loving and kind. And God, we see that come together at the cross. And so this morning, as we look to the cross, help us to understand that. Help us to be broken by our sin, but to bask in your love when we put our trust in Christ. Help us to know that we can stand before you you boldly with great joy because of Christ. And let that joy fuel us even in our worship and our praise here today. And so we commit this time to you. God, we pray for um, Patty Morris as she serves to point the people of France to you with a a team of missionaries and pastors and a church there in France. We pray that you would empower her, encourage her, give her strength as she continues to run this race for you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and depend upon it. And Father, we ask and pray that as we hear your word this morning, that it would transform our hearts and minds, that we would see Jesus more clearly, and that everything about us would change because of that. We ask this all, we pray this all by the blood, and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday on calendar, which kicks off Passion Week. And sometimes we don't quite know what to do with Palm Sunday, and I think it's okay to admit it. I know I struggle with it every year. Pastor friends of mine that follow the liturgical year and, and the church calendar have it easy. They just preach the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday every year. And I was talking to a friend of mine uh, yesterday, actually, that does that. I'm like, you know, you can preach that a hundred times and never plumb the depths of that passage and never bring out every truth that you could bring out. But we have a tendency, I think, to make things too complicated. And so today what I want to do is go quite simply highlight the mercy of Jesus, the mercy of God. As we look at a question from one condemned criminal to another. And to do that, we're going to have to fast forward past Palm Sunday. Now, if you think about Palm Sunday with me for a moment, if Jerusalem was a beehive, then the triumphal entry was like Jesus hitting it with a stick. He's riding it on a colt. It's the first time he has showed his face there since raising Lazarus. And the buzz just intensifies as the anger grows. We're going to have to fast forward past that. And then we're going to fast forward past Monday of that week, where Jesus declares the failure of God's covenant people to, to really hold to their calling to be a blessing to the nations. And he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. We're going to have to fast forward past Tuesday these verbal confrontations with the religious leaders. He leaves the temple and the chief priests and the scribes are, are plotting how to arrest him and kill him. We're going to need to fast forward past Wednesday in the house of Simon the leper and Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus with an alabaster flask of ointment preparing him for burial. 
And we'll fast forward past Thursday, which fills pages of scripture and six chapters in John's gospel. And you have the upper room and Gethsemane and betrayal and arrest and then these secret trials in the dead of night that literally bleeds in to Good Friday. Day breaks with a trial before the Sanhedrin, then being handed over to Pontius Pilate, and then over to Herod, and then back to Pilate, who reluctantly executes the verdict of crucifixion. Jesus, having lived a sinless life, done many miracles, shown himself to be God incarnate, he is sentenced to death because of the hatred of sinful man and by the predetermined plan of God. And he is severely beaten. He is nailed to a cross for six hours until dead. And he is providentially crucified between two thieves. They are looking on as he gives his life for the sins of the world. They're watching this scene as they themselves are also dying upon their own killing poles, these crosses. We encounter three people on crosses. Uh, The first person we'll name criminal number one because there is no name. The second person is criminal number two, and the third is Christ. In criminal number one, we see wicked depravity. Criminal number two, repentant depravity, and, and Christ, pure mercy, pure mercy. And we will see today that there is misery in our sin, but there is mercy in our Savior. Misery and sin, mercy in the Savior. Let's pick the story up, though, at verse 32. We're going to look at verses 39 to 43, but we need to see something in verse 32 first. Verse 32 says, two others. That's a very crucial word that gets inserted there. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Christ. Others, the Greek word heteros, means others of a different kind than Christ. This is a huge contrast. Here you have criminals. That word means violent villains, doing evil deeds, committing serious crimes. You have criminals, and then you have Christ, sinless, perfect in every way, impeccable. As one person put it, he alone was a sinless man, absolutely impeccable. Never was the contrast greater than at his death on the cross. It fulfills Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So let's pick it up at verse 39. Criminal number one. I've been calling him C1 all week. We got C1, C2, and Christ. And C1, criminal number one, wicked depravity. Put your eyes on verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there on a cross... It says they railed at him. He railed at him. That's a very strong word. It means he was hurling abuse at Christ. Picture being at the zoo. Picture seeing an animal in an enclosure. Picture seeing the animal reach down and pick something up off the ground very close to them and throw it at you. Hurling abuse at Christ. That word is actually the word for blaspheme. Blaspheming. Jesus continually, and saying this, 
over and over again. Are you not the Christ? This is no profession of faith here. Are you not the Christ, literally the Messiah? And if so, save yourself and us. He didn't want to be saved. And by the way, he's not getting down off that cross. It's pretty much a permanent thing on that, on that day. No confession of faith. This was a bitter taunt. He was taunting Christ. And can you imagine? Three on crosses, and, and they're, they're taunting him. The people next to him on either side, taunting him. Are you not the Christ? It's a pejorative negative intended to disparage him, intended to belittle and slander and defame. It's like verse 35, the rulers scoffing at Christ. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him. And what they're doing is they're making fun of him and they're imitating him in a distorted way. You know, when you try to maybe do a, uh, a mocking or mimicking of someone and you're kind of making fun or joking around with a friend even? What they're doing here is they're pantomiming evil against Christ. Fulfilling David's prophecy a thousand plus years earlier. Messiah's treatment by fellow Jews in, in Psalm 22. The reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me will sneer at me. They'll say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Sneering. Same verb is used in Psalm 2, verse 4 of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs, literally sneers at them. They're doing their wicked deeds. Because Jesus dying on the cross is the stone which the builders rejected, this living stone, 1 Peter 2.4 describes, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Choice and precious in God's sight. But all you get from the unregenerate, hate-filled criminal number one is blasphemy. He did not want Christ. He did not want anything to do with Christ. And you think about Jesus getting mocked at his first coming here. Some of the same people after the resurrection will mock the promise of his second coming. This is what people are doing even today. Mocking the fact that Christ promised to reappear, to return, to take his people to be with himself. He's coming with judgment for unbelievers. And people are mocking his promise of a second coming, even today. And mankind will continually do this, just like that continual mocking and sneering and jeering that criminal one is doing at the cross. It's just wicked depravity. And it comes with a, with a blunt force trauma of like running into a brick wall. It's not going to budge on you. Romans 5 explains some of our situation. One trespass, one sin, resulted in condemnation for all people. Through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners. John Donne had it right. No man is an island. Due to Adam, we sin. Due to Adam, we die. A lot of people will say, well, time out. 
I'm not the master of my fate. I don't get to decide my destiny. I'm not the determiner. No, you were born with a problem that goes way, way back long before you ever were born. We are all born, we all die in Adam. Michael Reeves observes this about this idea when we talk about being dead in Adam. We live in a world of hyper-individualism. So to talk of union with Adam or union with Christ sounds weird. That's about as factual as a unicorn. We don't like to think that we truly have unity with Adam. We say, well, that's unfair. I have to suffer for what he did wrong? It's like two siblings arguing. Both are getting in trouble, but it was only one at fault. Depravity. It mutilates the gospel message and our view of the gospel. It mangles it into the, like a mini message. And here, here's how it goes. This is an ad for consumers. Live with the touch of Jesus. Just add Jesus into what you've already got going on. He's the perfect complement. Romans 5 tells us of a far deeper problem and a far better answer, a far better vision. It's not that, that you have failed to be good enough. I mean, if that was the case, just try harder and dial up the morality, right? But who we are is the problem. Our identity is the problem. We're born of Adam. Our only hope is to be taken out of Adam's old humanity and be born again into a new humanity and be made a new creature in Christ. That's the gospel message. Go all the way back to the garden. You go all the way back to the garden, and if you think of Adam and Eve and that, that dismal day, that dark day of the fall, I think their hearts would have been thrilled to hear the gospel of the seed, Genesis 3.15, that would bruise the serpent's head. Born not of a man, but seed of a woman, a son that would be specially provided by God. As Galatians 4 tells us, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us who are under the curse. This long-expected offspring of the woman would, would crush the serpent. That's what happened at the cross. This is what Jesus, who died on the cross, was doing there, and yet, criminal one is dying and cursing God. Just cursing God over and over again. Have you ever come across anyone like that where they're literally dying? It's like a Christopher Hitchens saying, you can pray for me if you, want, if you think that'll help you. Have you ever come across someone who's literally on their deathbed or about to die soon? And they're like, I don't want Christ. I don't want to repent. I'm not going to turn to him. That's criminal number one. treating God with contempt, sneering over and over again, watching the agony of Christ dying on the cross next to him and throwing one scoff after another like jagged stones, just throwing them at Christ and blaming everyone but, the, but himself. I can imagine thief number one, criminal number one would say, it wasn't my fault that I'm here. 
It, he's got a, a whole list of other people whose fault it is. This is wicked, unbridled depravity of criminal number one, and you've got to leave it right there. You just, there's nowhere else to go with it. There it is. But then you come to criminal number two, and you see this picture that's different. There's a repentant depravity. Now, the interesting thing is that Matthew and Mark both say that both criminals were mocking Christ while he is on the cross, along with the crowd. And again, imagine the scene with me. You've got three crosses, Christ in the middle, thieves on either side. The crowd does not care about any of the three. The model back then is you just taunt them until they die. Because they can't come after you, they're dead. Matthew and Mark both say those crucified with him were also insulting him, which means that criminal number two was doing that, but what happened? At the outset, C2, criminal two, is abusing Jesus, but something changes. Look with me at verse 40. We'll look at verses 40 to 42, this repentant depravity of criminal number two. Verse 40 begins with the word but. That's very important. But something changes. The other rebuked him. Criminal number one is continually railing at Christ. And criminal number two says, you need to stop this right now. Rebuke here is a stern warning. It, it literally is a censure. You're expressing strong disapproval of something. You're denouncing. He's denouncing his fellow criminal who he had been in league with, and they were both jeering at Christ, but now he stops jeering at Christ. And, and what he's doing is he's, he's following what Ephesians 5.11 tells us to do. Take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And he corrects his fellow criminal in front of everyone watching. You know, it's embarrassing to get corrected in front of the group. It happens here. But you know, they're dying on a cross. Three people being jeered at, and now one of the criminals is saying, time out. Don't do that. Here's what he says. Here's a question he throws out. Do you not fear God? The absence of fear of God is characteristic of unbelievers. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It comes from Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked. Deep in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The unregenerate do not fear God. Solomon was right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. He says, don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence of condemnation. Can you imagine? How, he's making it very personal. He's saying, don't you fear God? You are under the same condemnation. How can you do this? Suddenly, criminal number two is fearing God. Something changed. There's a fear. There's an alarm. There's there's an awe, there's, there's this exceeding fear, and there's this reverential obedience that's coming out of this guy's mouth. Don't you fear God? We're supposed to fear God. And they're under condemnation. They're dying. They're bleeding. They've been beat 
beaten. They're, 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 they're done. One of the same condemnation. That's a sentence from a judge. That's a pronouncement from a judge. It's a decision after an investigation. In Jeremiah 5, verse 3, says, O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them. They refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock, and they refuse to repent. Verse 41, he's, he's saying to his, his, his fellow criminal, you really don't fear God in this moment of your life? Well, your, your, your heart's going to give out soon. You can barely breathe. He says in verse 41, we are justly dying. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, the consequences worthy of what we did. Death, hell, eternal torment. But what are the crazed cry? Bring it on, right? I can just see criminal ones going, I don't care. They know not what they do. And yet this condemned criminal number two, he's confessing his sinfulness. He's not just saying, hey, don't you fear God. He's saying, I am a sinner in in need of a savior. And the death I'm dying right now, I deserve. He's confessing his sinfulness. He acknowledges he deserves the punishment he got. The Holy Spirit has convicted him of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's admitting his guilt. He's agreeing with God. He's saying, my condemnation is evidence of what I did. But him admitting it is a sign of true repentance. A right view of yourself and of your sin leads you to a right view of Christ and his work. The thief is somehow transformed. As one person put it, nature forms us. Sin deforms us. School informs us. Christ transforms us. This thief is, is repentant. There is no other way you can put it. It reminds me of the repentant tax collector in, in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. Verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. He tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men go up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, who do you think went home justified? No one can be saved without seeing themselves as they truly are. The cross exposes us. The cross unmasks us exposes our pride and our foolishness and our pettiness and our littleness and our ugliness. And here you got the crowds in Jerusalem and they're, they're mocking Christ and the criminals even. You got this bloodthirsty fickleness and, and all the guilt just laid bare by the quiet innocence of Christ, the merciful one. 
It leads us to look upon Christ's love and his power and his, his perfect justice and his mercy. And he didn't just confess that he was a sinner. He confessed that Christ is sinless. Notice with me at the end of verse 41, he says, but this man, he has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. The one hanging next to me, unblemished, spotless, impeccable, perfect, God Almighty. But we are justly condemned. He has done nothing wrong. The perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that carries them upon himself. You know, over and over in this passage of Scripture, in this, this chapter, people are saying Jesus is not guilty. Verse 4, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Verses 14 and 15, Pilate and Herod both find him not guilty. Verse 22, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him worthy of death. This thief, verse 41, he's done nothing wrong. Even the centurion in verse 47, this man was innocent. But we're guilty. We've done lots of things wrong. We're worthy of death. We're not innocent. And this thief is paving the way for us to confess our sinfulness and confess Christ's sinlessness because that's what he did. He confessed his sinfulness and he confessed Christ's sinlessness. Now what does he do next? Look at verse 42. He cries out for mercy. That's what he does. Verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, Yahweh saves, sovereign savior, remember me. This should boomerang you right back to last week, remembering his creator, not in his youth, but on his deathbed. And he wasn't even, in, he wasn't even laying down. He, he was a death tree. He's remembering who God is and what he does, and he's asking God to remember him. Jesus, remember me. It's, it's a statement of faith. It is a statement of absolute faith in Christ. Asking for God to forget his sin and take away his shame and save him. It's like Isaiah 45, verse 22, the verse that God used to save Spurgeon. Look to me, God says. Look to me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. I hope you have come to the point in your life when you are willing to confess your sins and say, Jesus is perfect. He died on the cross in my place. He was buried. He rose on, from the dead on the third day. He's coming back. He's reigning. He's coming back. There's forgiveness in no one else. Do you know that criminal two is praying? He's praying while he's dying. This bloody, broken, dying criminal prays to a bloody, broken, dying Christ. Christ. You know, the eye of faith sees what depravity obscures, and God had given him faith to believe, and, and depravity had obscured it in his life. There is no mention of the second of the first criminal ever confessing his sins 
or saying he wanted to believe in Jesus. There's no mention that he ever stopped sneering and jeering and mocking Christ. But there is beautiful mention of criminal number two who says, remember me. He has nothing to give. He has nothing to offer. He has nothing, nothing, no reason in the world for God to say, I'll do anything for you. Remember, remember, that's a bold, imperative plea. He's begging Christ. He believes, by the way, that Jesus will be at a different place in the future. He says, when you come into your kingdom. I don't know. I don't know if he, if he knew Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I don't know. All I know is that he knew of a future kingdom of God ruled by the Messiah. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He hoped to be with Jesus sometime in the future. He knew of a kingdom of God ruled by Messiah. He is saying in this prayer, Jesus, you are the long-expected Messiah. You are the answer. And he did this knowing that all three of them are dying and are going to die but he knew that Jesus would live. One minute he's reviling, the next minute he's repenting. This convicting, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. You know, this should teach you and I something very, very important. There is none too wretched. God's Spirit turns hearts. God saves souls. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit granted him repentance. It's Romans 2.4. And his kindness. And he has faith and eternal life. And at the very same time, you have this unbelieving thief and the soldiers and the leaders all blinded. And he gets this supernatural heart change. He goes from insulting Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. It's like Saul on the road to Damascus, where Jesus just stops him in his tracks, arrests him literally, saves him. And the thief, like Saul, like Paul, in a moment, in just a moment, was, was rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Unless there's anyone here who says, you know, I'm not a believer, and I'm going to wait till the very last second. Let me just tell you, the Bible is not full of stories of people who got saved on their deathbed. There is one. This is it. And he wasn't lying down. Most people get saved when they're young. I love Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. 
And we grieve with hope when someone who loved Jesus dies, but I think most of us would have a problem, a, a little twinge to apply Psalm 116, verse 15, to the thief on the cross. Well, he got in by the skin of his teeth, but he didn't do anything. He did some bad stuff. We look sideways when those who have lived shamefully are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Sometimes you have a loved one die and as far as you know, they died without Christ. It's one of the saddest things for a believer to deal with. And you don't know what happened. Maybe they cried out to God for mercy at the last moment. We, we don't know. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. There's pain in knowing people die without Christ. Don't ever give anyone false hope. If you don't know, you don't know. 2 Timothy 2.19 also says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from iniquity, wickedness. Criminal number two, departed from iniquity. Hanging on a cross, dying for his own sins. And his sins were transferred onto that other cross in the middle, onto Christ. If you don't believe in Christ, your sins are on you. But once you believe in Christ, your sins are on him. In that moment, his sins were transferred onto Christ. What mercy. What grace. Christ was condemned in his place. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would bring us to God. Someone said, I don't even know where this came from, but someone said, one, one deathbed conversion in the Bible only so that no one would despair, but only one so that no one would presume. Don't say you're going to wait to the last moment. There's wicked depravity in our hearts. There's, by the grace of God, there's repentant depravity. But in Christ, and I want you to look at verse 43 with me, there is pure, unadulterated mercy. Mercy. The thief asks to be remembered, and, and Jesus gives one of those far more above everything that we could ask or think kind of answers that is so typical of how God answers his children. Here Christ on the death tree shows mercy. He is the mercy seat. You can rest in Christ, humbly and boldly serving him because he mercifully shed his blood for you. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon just to the kids of his congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts. At the top of the first page, it just said, to the children, August 1740. And he preached um, Matthew 10, 37, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And in this sermon, he gave six reasons why children should love Jesus more than anything else in life. And the first reason was this, there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy he is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. There is no kindness, kindness like Jesus Christ's. There is no kindness like Jesus Christ's. And so we see in verse 43 that Jesus 
speaks one of the seven last words of Christ on the cross. He speaks and he says this. Truly, that's the word amen. That's an authoritative word from God beyond question, a divine exclamation point. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And not the city up north. Paradise, heaven, heaven itself. Here is this criminal dying on the cross that everyone looks at and says he's unredeemable, he's done, and he's guaranteed by the Redeemer that he would be rescued. Today, paradise. That word paradise comes from a Persian word meaning garden or a park. In the Old Testament, it's used 45 times. It's spoken of the Garden of Eden most of the time. Man sinned in the first garden, but there is a future garden that will be sinless due to the Lamb and the blood of the Lamb. In Isaiah 51, verse 3, it says, the future, speaking of the future of the redeemed in the kingdom like Eden, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. The wilderness he will make like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Paradise. Three times in the New Testament. All three times referring to heaven. God's presence. Believers experience his presence immediately at death. There's a place of the righteous dead. It's the abode of God. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. First John 5, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who goes to paradise? Every true believer. Now the, the Jehovah's Witnesses twist this. They teach that the thief on the cross was not with Christ in paradise that day, that he was annihilated at death, that he's nowhere right now, and that he will be in paradise at some point during the future millennium. Total lies. God's true design is much better, much simpler, much clearer. Today means today. You will be means you will be. With me means with me. In paradise means in paradise. There's no transi- you know, transitional purgatory. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. With Jesus in paradise, the abode of God. And by the way, Jesus did not say, oh, um, we've got a bonus round right now, and you're both going to be with me in paradise. Woo! There's no universalism. You cannot be a universalist and be a solid Christian. You have to deny too much. Depravity, the deity of Christ, the mercy of God, you would trample on the gospel of the grace of God in Christ if you say that everyone gets in. There's no collective bargaining agreement with God. God decides destinies, and on his death tree, only one condemned criminal was given new life. And by the way, if you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, that's heretical. This proves, this verse proves, baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism is an obedience to Christ. If you're a a believer that has not been baptized, come be baptized next week in the horse troughs on Easter. This criminal, this criminal, it's like for him, yesterday prison, today paradise. Dying for the sins of the world, Christ says to this criminal, I'm taking you with me. I'm taking you with me. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 
from the misery of sin to the mercy of our Savior. There is misery in our sin, but there is mercy in our Savior. There is wicked depravity and repentant depravity, but there is pure mercy in Christ. When you think of this painful moment at the cross, this painful moment, life just slows down to a crawl. Hearts start beating slower. Hearts are about to fail. And criminal number two, here's Jesus' kind assurance. And if you think about us, we would not have allowed a miserable, dying, bloody, undeserving thief anywhere near the door of heaven, much less walking in with Jesus himself. But Jesus says otherwise. It has zero to do with what he had done, all to do with what Jesus did, who gave his life for undeserving sinners like you and I. Samuel Rutherford, speaking of the loveliness of Christ, said this, when we shall come home and enter to the possession of our brother's fair kingdom, when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, when we shall look back to pains and sufferings, then we shall see life and sorrow to be less than one step from a prison to glory. And our suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Lord, thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you have promised to do. Thank you that you are still saving souls. Thank you that you are still receiving us, that you, you hear us when we confess our sins and believe in you and receive your salvation. Lord, you draw us to yourself and your mercy and your grace, and we praise you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. And would you stand and join us if you're able? We will close singing, Behold Our God. Yeah.
I want to give you a quick update from our elders. If you've seen the email already, you know from Friday. But we are going to, just to give you an idea of where we're going in the coming months, uh, we plan to keep this tent through the end of June. And that will give a place for youth ministries and uh, Vacation Bible School June 21 to 25 as well. But we'll be moving on indoors. Uh, our plan is at least by June 6th, June 6th. And then we'll have an outdoor area as well on the plaza uh, for overflow. And so that's the plan right now. And thank you for uh, sticking it out with us under this tent for so long. I know a lot of us have gotten really used to it. And so there will be a day when it is not here. Okay, so we're giving you a little bit of time to get used to that. Also, this coming Wednesday night, I'm going to be, we'll have a service here, and we're going to be preaching, I'll be preaching on the cross and mercy and depravity, meeting at the cross, a lot of applications flowing out from this message today and a lot of other things. And then Thursday and Friday will be live stream, we're doing that Easter week live, live stream lunchtime worship at noon, and that will be on uh, Sacrifice of Christ on the cross and substitution. So Thursday and Friday will be live streamed, but Wednesday night will be live uh, in person. All right, let's go ahead and close with Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 21 says, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We praise you, Lord, that your steadfast love never ceases. Thank you that your mercies never come to an end. They're new every day, and your faithfulness is so great. Thank you that you're the portion of our souls. Our hope is in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for our worship service today. We are so glad that you chose to spend the time with us as we open up the Word of God sang our hearts out to the Lord and prayed in dependence upon the Lord on this Palm Sunday, focused on what Jesus has done and what he will do. He is coming back. This Easter week, we are gonna be celebrating. On Wednesday night, we have a seminar at 6.30 right here in our worship center on the cross of Christ where mercy and depravity meet. Also Thursday and Friday, we have Easter week lunchtime worship, 12 noon that we'll be live streaming. And then come join us on Easter Sunday if you're doing the live stream, it'll be at 9.30 a.m. as usual. But we're meeting in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. We'd love to have you join us. Get more information at graceorange.org. Thank you and God bless you.